Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 to 15. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you and people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Which of them foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right, so that others may hear and say, It is true, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no saviour. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I, and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's creator, your King. This is the word of the Lord. We read that the Lord says, I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. And Lord, we thank you that you've revealed truth to us in your word. We thank you that you've saved us through your incarnate word, the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that you've given us the privilege of proclamation. Encourage us this morning, we pray. Comfort us by your word and strengthen us for the task. In Jesus' name, amen. So as Kirsten said, it's, uh, we call this Alpha Sunday, and we are obviously rallying support for the Autumn Alpha course and encouraging one another, again, to stick our necks out and invite our friends to come and consider uh, the Christian message 
come and talk about it, ask questions, hear questions answered in, a in an unthreatening and congenial environment. And it's possible, I guess, that when we're faced with the challenge of winning our world for Christ, to feel uh, a bit overwhelmed, a bit like perhaps the, uh, the Japanese or Namibian rugby team might feel when they run onto the pitch to play New Zealand. I remember that feeling very well myself. I was a surprisingly small and skinny fly half when I was a teenager and only shot up late in my years. And I remember going onto the pitch and seeing opposition teams looking much bigger than us. And my unkind friend would whisper in my ear, you know, have you seen their number eight? He started shaving or something like that. And, uh, <laughs> and you kind of shake in your boots a bit. Well, we're in Isaiah and the great prophet is speaking words of assurance and encouragement to a very scared people indeed, a people languishing in exile in Babylon. Let me just try to explain this for a moment because uh, it's, a, it's a slightly contentious issue. Everyone agrees that chapters 1 to 39 in Isaiah are written in the 8th century BC when Israel and Judah were beginning to feel the pressure of the Assyrian empires attacking them from the north. Assyria was led by particularly ferocious kings, people like Tiglath-Pileser and Zanacharib, whose names have gone down in history. And they looked really big to Israel. They looked really big. And Isaiah's message summed up in his vision when he saw the king, that is God, high and lifted up and his train filling the temple. You remember that wonderful passage. Isaiah's message is that the Lord himself was in fact the supreme ruler of the world. And in due course, he would determine the fate of Assyria, Israel, and Judah, and of course Babylon. That's chapters 1 to 39, but there's not such general agreement as to exactly when chapters 40 to 66 were written. Some scholars argue passionately for what's called the unity of Isaiah, and uh, that therefore what we read about here, about the Babylonians and about Cyrus the Persian coming and defeating them, is a prophetic word about what God is going to do in the future. Others say that the detail is so great that it must have been written following the defeat by the Babylonians in 587 BC, so written in an exilic context. The arguments are complex and sophisticated, and whatever view one takes, one should do so humbly, recognizing uh, the strength of the counter view. I myself feel that there is a, there is a compelling case for the unity of Isaiah, and uh, a number of, uh, obviously, the more conservative scholars have persuaded me, on the whole, that that is the stronger view. But we shouldn't fall out with those who disagree with us about it. But whether it's written prophetically or with hindsight, in a sense, the power of the message is unaltered. The people are scared. They are beleaguered and bewildered. They're not assure, at all sure that they have uh, enough confidence in God even to keep believing in Him and praying to Him, yet alone, as we might say, you know, sticking our necks out, inviting friends to come and consider uh, the God that we believe in uh, at Alpha or whatever. And so this section of the, of the book begins in chapter 40 with the wonderful words of, uh, of the Lord through Isaiah. Comfort for my people, says God. I'm bringing comfort to this beleaguered and bewildered people. I bring comforting news to you. 
And so how does Isaiah comfort them? And how might we be encouraged and comforted to be bolder in our faith, perhaps when we too can sometimes feel a bit beleaguered and a bit like a minority in an alien culture? And the first point that I would make in in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 43 is that we should not be afraid to trust the Lord. Don't be afraid to trust the Lord. In chapter 40, in that wonderful uh, passage uh, in chapter 40, which is perhaps um, the kind of central point of Isaiah's prophet, if you just turn back a couple of pages, uh, you'll see in chapter 40 that uh, Isaiah reminds the people that the Lord created the universe. It's a very crucial passage, chapter 40 and verse 22. I'll just read a little bit about it, It, words that will be familiar to many of you. Uh, It's on page 725. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown. No sooner they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like a chaff. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes, look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Now that is marvelous enough. We have a God who we can believe in, who is the creator of the universe. And here in 43 and verse 1, he brings even more comfort to the people by reminding them that not only is the Lord the maker of the universe, but he also created them. He is their creator. He is the one who made them. He who created you, O Jacob. He who formed you, O Israel. Think for a moment of your own children or those for whom you really care, nieces or nephews perhaps, or grandchildren if you don't have children of your own. Think how appalled you would be if anyone tried to harm them. Think what you would do to protect your children because you love them and they know that you love them and they trust you. They expect you to be there for them and to protect them. A few years ago when our youngest daughter Laura was a a little bit younger than she is now, I got her to jump from a table uh, here. She was standing on a table here at the front of the church in an all-age service into my arms to demonstrate her trust in her loving father. The point was made, I hope, but my back has never been the same since. But, uh, but we try to do this, don't we? Even though we're fallen people, we try to love our children so that they will trust us and believe in us. And here in Isaiah 43, we read that we belong to the holy and awesome God who stretched out the universe and put the stars in place. And we are precious in His sight. He loves us and He will be with us. It is into his arms, so to speak, that we jump by faith. That is what Jesse has done. He has jumped into the loving arms of his caring heavenly father. Now, originally, these words were written from people very far away from their homeland. They were facing, as it says here in, um, at the beginning of verse 43, they were facing literal fires and deep water. It picks up the theme from the end of chapter 42. 
There is no quick fix for them. Their exile was a terrifying and seemingly endless dark tunnel of servitude, of separation, and of homelessness in Babylon. But here, through the prophet Isaiah, God promises not to forsake or abandon them. And perhaps at times, we Christians can feel like exiles and aliens in a pretty hostile world. Maybe it seems like that uh, for our children sometimes in the schools of our city. But do not be afraid, for we are loved. We are loved. We can trust in the one who redeems his people. Isaiah um, tells the people that the Lord loves them so much that he will exchange whole nations for them. He's prepared to pay a huge price for the people that he loves. He will exchange Egypt, about the richest nation at that time. Cush, basically the whole uh, of northern Sudan and Ethiopia. And, and Seba, which is really Arabia. God is prepared to give up those countries, if you like, for his people. He prepared to make massive sacrifices to rescue his people because he cares so much. And eventually, he says uh, that he will give up men and women in exchange for his people. And of course, we know that eventually the man that he gave up in exchange for us was in fact his own dear and precious son. But that is still some way off and not clear even in Isaiah's mind, I suspect, although as we go on through these chapters, we'll see increasingly he points to the rescuing person of the Lord Jesus himself. But the point that Isaiah is making to the, to the exiles in Babylon is that God is for us. He is for us. He is in charge. Don't let's be afraid to go on trusting him. And secondly, in verses 8 to 13, don't be afraid to speak up for the Lord. Don't be afraid to speak up for Him, even in a, in a situation of exile, even in a situation of danger. Is Isaiah's astonishing message to the Babylonian exiles is that God is raising up a rescuer. Someone is coming who will restore their fortunes, who will overcome their enemies and enable them to return to Jerusalem. God is in charge, something is going to happen, a new thing is going to happen, such something you've never seen before, and it'll mean that you can come back to Jerusalem. Well, you think immediately, of course, that here I am bringing Jesus into the Old Testament again. And it is true that the servant of whom Isaiah speaks turns out not to be the nation Israel, but uh, uh, which, which in this passage he clearly identifies the servant with the nation. It turns out, of course, to be fulfilled in the coming of Jesus himself. But here, in Isaiah 43, the rescuer turns out to be a very surprising person indeed. It is none other than a pagan Persian called Cyrus. Just turn for a moment to the beginning of chapter 45. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. God raised up Cyrus, a Persian, not a Jewish person, not a believer in God at all, raised up Cyrus to defeat the Babylonians. 
and to pass a decree allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem. And in temp contemporary inscriptions bear all this out. So God is at work in history to rescue His people, and He will achieve that work how He pleases to do it. He will do it. So Isaiah, in verse 8 here, takes us to the law court, and the Lord is on trial. Can God really be trusted? Who will speak up for Him? You see, the false gods have their witnesses, the countless thousands who worship them. They're all around us today. All the nations is how he describes them here. Vast numbers of witnesses to say that God can't be trusted, that He doesn't really exist even. Uh, the power of the argument of the new atheists. The false gods have their witnesses, those who advocate uh, religions that, are, uh, that do not contain the whole truth and lead to salvation. There are countless thousands who worship these gods. They are all around us today, all the nations. But who will speak for God? Who will speak up for God in this law court? And in come, in verse 8, in come the deaf and the blind. It is a pitiful sight. These beleaguered captives stuck in Israel, injured and wounded by the dragging into captivity, the weak and feeble of the world. But they produce incontrovertible evidence that God is in charge. God has raised up Cyrus. He has defeated the Babylonians. What God said would happen has happened exactly as He said. We may feel feeble and weak, but truth and history is on our side. Things have worked out as God said they would work out. And as these deaf and blind witnesses speak up for God, they are transformed into world-changing, powerful witnesses. God Himself affirms them. Not only is Cyrus an agent of God's blessing and salvation, but the people are themselves true servants of the true God. You see, when we speak up for God, we're not we're not defending some theory, we're not defending some sort of bright idea. We're speaking up for a God who has done stuff in history, who works through history. He's given evidence of it in history. And as we speak up, we are magnified in our faith. The very act of witnessing ourselves magnifies, creates faith in us, helps us to go bolder and stronger. You see, these captive Jews could point back to the Exodus, where God really did bring them through the waters, as well as pointing to the predicted rescue of Cyrus. We can do that too, as I am this morning, as we preach, of course. But we, this side of the cross, all of us, can point to the great events that happened in Jerusalem centuries later, just as we will see they were foretold by Isaiah in this wonderful section of his prophecy. We can say, God has done exactly what He said He would do in history. He'd said it centuries before, and it happened. So God can, God can be trusted, and we dare speak up for Him, because He's proven Himself to be true. 
in speaking up for their God, these captive Jews reasserted their Jewishness, if you like. They grew stronger in their sense of being a nation once again, having been completely stripped of their, uh, their pride and their identity as a people. And as Peter puts it, we need to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks us to give reason for the hope that is within us so that we grow in confidence in our faith. We need to be ready for that. And of course, Alpha provides us with that opportunity. God is for us. He's proven it in history. So don't let's be afraid to speak up for Him. And lastly, very quickly, don't be afraid for the Lord wins. We weren't originally going to look at these uh, last two verses, verses 14 and 15, but it seemed to me so apt uh, that we should look at that it is, because it, it is very much part of the passage. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took bride. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's Creator, your King. Don't be afraid, for the Lord wins. It, it was a terrible and terrifying thing for them to be taken into captivity. This week, I'm sure you've been reading about or seeing on the television uh, about this poor woman, Mrs. Tebbert, whose husband was shot in Kenya, and she has been taken into captivity by whoever, Somalian pirates or whoever it, whoever it turns out to be. Can you imagine anything more terrifying? You're on holiday in paradise, and you see your husband shot and then you are whisked away in a speedboat to some unknown destination. It is awful. And that is what happened to the Jewish people. That is what happened to the Jewish nation when the Babylonians descended on Jerusalem. No doubt many were butchered, probably in front of their families. And the rest, perhaps mostly women and children, young Daniel, for instance, was amongst them, were dragged off to Babylon, modern-day Iraq. Babylon's might was irresistible, terrifying. The people were pawns in their hands. But according to Isaiah, their omnipotence is an illusion. The all-powerful Babylonians will themselves be made captives. Cyrus's army will come and sweep them away. Their proud ships that traded up and down the Tigris and the Euphrates will become ships filled with fugitives fleeing from Cyrus's mighty army. It is a pattern that we see again and again in history, and of course it happened here just as Isaiah says. Centuries later, uh, in our own time, we've had a similar picture as Saddam Hussein's statue was toppled and trampled into the dust of Baghdad. We see it now with Gaddafi's images being trampled in the dust of Tripoli. History working out, and Isaiah says that God is sovereign and overseeing it. You know how reluctant I am to use illustrations from sport, but uh, I, am, I am an unashamed and fanatical supporter of the England rugby team. I love watching international rugby matches. I am absurd, I can't imagine how I managed to get myself landed with the eight o'clock communion service this morning and, and had to abandon ship at half time. Anyway, 
I'm absurdly confident of the England rugby team's success, and I will speak up for them. Why, last week, with people in church, I was crowing with New Zealanders here how they had nearly choked against Tonga. I was uh, ripping into South Africans who had got out of jail against Wales. And I, I chose conveniently to forget that England were truly awful against Argentina. England win, I said. England will win. England must win, I cry into disbelieving ears all around me. Well, despite my cries, England may well not win. My witness may prove false. My hopes may be dashed. But it will not be so. It will not be so when you and I speak up for our God. As Isaiah says here, He is the Lord. He is the Redeemer. He is the Holy One. He is the Creator, and He is the King. And nothing actually can frustrate His plan for our world. He is victorious. He has proven it again and again in history. Extraordinary things down through history have happened when we've seen God's hand at work bringing kingdoms to naught, as it says in Isaiah 40, bringing down tyrants and restoring justice. He is victorious. He has proven himself in history. He has finally, in history, defeated the greatest enemy of all, the enemy of death. So do not be afraid to live for him. He wins. So as we move into an opportunity for outreach, let's renew our trust in the God who controls history. Let's speak up for the God who would give his own life in exchange for us. And let's go home confident that we have joined a winning team. Amen.